Hello friends, and welcome to our Lenten study of the elements of Lent. During this study, we'll look at various material things in the world that remind us of the story of Christ's walk towards the cross and our own path as we follow him. Today, the first element that we'll look at is wilderness. Think of the rocky desert, the sand, the barrenness. And what I'd like for us to see today is that the wilderness is and appears in scripture how people see it. It's not necessarily one place that is just one thing. And we're going to look at a few places in scripture where the perspective of what the wilderness is and what the wilderness means is very different. I think that this will be very uh, helpful for us as we start thinking about where are places in our own world and lives that we can identify as wilderness and what meaning might that have and what guidance might that provide for us as we walk through those places or as we accompany others when they walk through them. Let's begin first of all in that famous story of the desert and a people wandering in the wilderness, the Exodus story. Think back to Moses asking Pharaoh to let the people go so they could sacrifice to God in the wilderness. In fact, in Exodus 8, 25 through 27, Moses tells Pharaoh, it would not be right for us to sacrifice in the land of Egypt. For the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God are offensive to Egyptians. And if we offer them in the sight of the Egyptians, will they not stone us? We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Notice here how the wilderness functions. It is a place of worship. It is the place where they must go away from all other things in order to properly worship God. The worship of Yahweh cannot be done in a place that's hostile to it, where people would stone them for offering their particular sacrifices, for worshiping this God that cannot be seen. But it's also, we know, a place of rescue. This is the ploy that Moses and Aaron are using in order to get the people out of this place of bondage, in order for them to gain some distance so that God could sever the tie between them and the land that's enslaved them. So already before they even get to the wilderness, the wilderness is conceived as a place of worship and a place of rescue. Now, as soon as Pharaoh does indeed finally let the people go, it, the, the text in Exodus 13 actually gives us a specific insight into God's logic for why they went through the wilderness. This is very interesting. The text says in Exodus 13, 17 through 22, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, for God thought 
if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to, to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt and the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along that way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Notice how this conjures images of shelter and protection. And when we think about the people wandering in the wilderness, we sometimes get a picture in our minds that this is somehow leading them astray. In fact, it does say that it was the long way around. But the text says that God was thinking that it would be safer for them. It would actually give them rest from being afraid. They wouldn't encounter any peoples for some time, and so it would give them time to calm down after coming out of bondage that they'd been in for hundreds of years. And after this frightening ordeal that they had in even just getting out of Egypt, the wilderness was conceived in God's mind as a place of protection and as a place of rest. And this is why it's important for us to understand that wilderness doesn't mean one thing. It really means whatever the viewer thinks of it. Picture the wilderness or the desert as a blank canvas. God looks at the wilderness and says, this would be a place where my people could rest from all of the other people of the world. They're no longer in servitude to the Egyptians. They're not at war with the Philistines. This could be a place where they can rest and a place where they're protected and sheltered. Moses is considering before he takes the people out of Egypt that this would be a place of worship and a place of revelation for the people. Remember how before Moses came back to Egypt and united with his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam in order to get the people out, he had fled into the wilderness. And what did he find there? He found God in a burning bush and that God gave him a calling and a purpose. By Moses saying that this will be a place of worship, place of rescue for the people, Moses is believing that the wilderness will be the same place of protection and revelation for God's people as it was for him. And we see from God's perspective that this wilderness will also be a place of rest and a place of divine protection. God won't leave them, not by day or by night. The pillar never left its place in front of the people. Now, to be sure, Notice how based on the, the circumstances, whether it's day or night, the pillar did change. The perspective is a little different because at night, a cloud can't be seen. 
So all of this language of the wilderness depends on how you see it. It depends on what you're looking for in it. And that's how you end up interpreting it. And of course, we know that there were some who interpreted in a very different way, not as divine protection, not as shelter and rest, but as fearful. Notice what the Israelites say in Exodus 14, 10 through 14. As Pharaoh drew near, remember Pharaoh and the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites. It says the Israelites looked back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us up out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. From their perspective, because remember it says, they looked back. And as they looked back, the wilderness took on, it was imbued with this sense of fear and dread and panic that they got from looking at their former slave masters coming to take them back. And so the wilderness in their perspective becomes this terrifying place, a place of death. Now, what's interesting is Moses tries to guide the people and he responds to them when they say this. And he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Do you see how Moses shifts it to a matter of perspective? Yes, you see them right now, but you will not see them again. And so what you're really looking at is you're not looking at the Egyptians on their way to take you back to Egypt. You're not looking at the Egyptians on their way to kill you. What you're actually looking at is God fighting for you and accomplishing a rescue, a divine victory for you. But it depends on whether or not you will allow yourself to see that. What lens are you looking through? Now, sadly, we know from the rest of the story that this notion of the wilderness as a place of death and punishment was what the Israelites feared. What the, the Hebrew children feared was that they've been brought out in this wilderness, this no place, in order to suffer and to die. And all throughout uh, the the several books of Exodus and Leviticus and particularly Numbers, the people continue to complain. The people continue to see, to take the perspective of the wilderness that it is a place of punishment, it's a place of suffering, and it's a place of hardship. And here's the interesting thing. The fact that they continued to iterate this notion that the wilderness is this bad place, this place of lack, a place of scarcity, a place of death. By that constant view, 
that's what it became. Notice, notice exactly how this is phrased in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation complain against me? I have heard the complaints of the Israelites, which they complain against me. Now you say to them, As I live, says the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Meaning, all those things that you kept worrying about, that you kept complaining about, that you continued to see even though they were not there, now they are actually going to materialize because of the perspective that you took. And so the voice of God says, your dead bodies shall fall in this very wilderness. And all of your number, included in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have complained against me, not one of you shall come into the land which I swore to settle you. But your little ones, who you said would become booty, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you've despised. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. They were so fearful that they were going to die in the wilderness. They were so afraid that they would meet with uh, these foreign people that would overpower them and would take their children and their livestock as, as, as loot from a war, from a battle, that the thing that they said would happen to them happened. But God said, no, the children that you worried wouldn't make it. They're going to make it. But the reason that you're not making it isn't because any of those things had to happen because it's how you chose to see the situation. Now, I do want to caution us. So often, uh, we tend to hear people talk about, oh, those Israelites. God had provided for them over and over. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He gave them fresh water in the wilderness. He provided for them, and they just stubbornly refused to believe. We have to remember all of the perspectives of the wilderness that we're reading are Israelite perspectives. The voice of Moses saying, this is a place of rest and a place of protection. Even the voice of God we have to remember, is being written probably during the exile by priests and scribes and other faithful Israelites. And they are in using the voice of God in order to communicate this notion that wilderness is a place of worship and a place of reception of the law. So we have to remember that that particular voice of complaint and that choice to see the wilderness as a place of punishment is only one of the many perspectives of the wilderness, which is why it's so important to remember that this is meant to be a, a view of the entire spectrum of ways to understand what the wilderness is symbolically. And in fact, when we get to the end of the Pentateuch, we hear the words of Moses, Again, and here in Deuteronomy, 
And remember, please, Deuteronomy is actually um, from two Greek words, and it means the second law. And so what we find in Deuteronomy is another iteration of the same law that was given in Exodus and Leviticus. Another um, go at it, another way of putting it, a repetition of it in a sense. But it also means more than just a repetition, it's also a revision, a way of looking at it from a different perspective. More than likely, it's also from a later time. And we all know, don't we, that hindsight is twenty twenty. that it's sometimes easier to see and understand things when they're in the past and when we have the benefit of the wisdom of having gone through it and experienced it. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses is sort of revisiting what happened in all of those other uh, books that we've read. And the voice of Moses says, the Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as one carries a child all the way that you traveled until you reached this place. Think how beautiful that is and think how it is so focused on what they saw that the wilderness is not just this place, but it's a place of sight. You watched God fight for you. You saw how God carried you. And so you can choose to see the wilderness as a place of provision, as a place of God's presence. In fact, in the next chapter, in Deuteronomy 2, The voice of Moses again says, Surely the Lord your God has blessed you in all your undertakings. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, and these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So the wilderness, when you actually stop and look at what really did happen now that we've gone through it, well, we can choose to see the wilderness as a place of provision because We lacked nothing. We can choose to see the wilderness as a place of God's presence because God has been with us and indeed God has carried us. Now, when we get to the prophets, particularly, the wilderness comes back up again and none, nowhere quite so uh, striking as the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, in fact, reimagines the wilderness. And I want to draw a distinction here. Yes, we see a progression of perspectives on the wilderness in the Pentateuch. And Moses instructs the people to see the wilderness as this place where God carried them, where God provided for them miraculously. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the wilderness was a good place. In fact, that perspective can be the wilderness is not a great place, but it's this canvas where God does these really wonderful things in spite of it being a wasteland, in spite of it being forsaken by all other things. But once we get to Isaiah, we actually see the wilderness completely reimagined. So it's not just that God can do Um, amazing uh, things in unexpected places. 
but it's that God can take unexpected places and turn them into amazing places. And so when we come to Isaiah 32, Isaiah says that the palace will be forsaken and all of the cities will be emptied. So think about that. All the places where you expect there to be life, where you expect there to be activity, where you expect abundance, those places will be emptied and desolate until a spirit from on high is poured out on us and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the field. Isaiah reimagines that it's, it's not even that the wilderness is a bad place where God can do good things in spite of how bad it is there, but that even things that the world says are bad and that can actually be transformed into places where it's actually good. That what if we looked at the wilderness and instead of seeing its desolation and calling it just empty and void, what if we called it spacious? What if that makes more room and space for beautiful things? What if this dry, barren land suddenly gets rain? Well, so much space now becomes this fruitful field. What if the cities, the palaces, the places of government are so corrupt, are so broken, that the wilderness, where there's space, where there's perspective, where there's calm, what if there, that's where we'll actually find justice? What if that's where we actually find the perspective that can allow people to live properly in community and in righteousness with one another and with God? This is a powerful way that Isaiah reimagines what the wilderness is. And in fact, a lot of what Isaiah is doing is he's drawing on Israel's past. He's making this connection that if Israel wants to move forward, if it wants to reimagine the wilderness, all it has to do is go back because God is in the habit of always doing these new and amazing things. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So he brings up the Exodus and he says, this is the same God who did that, who in the wilderness showed you how powerful he was and how he was willing to do anything to protect you. But now notice this. Listen to how the prophet makes this new reimagined turn. Do not remember those former things or consider the things of old because I am about to do a new thing. And now it springs forth. Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I'm not just going to be with you through the wilderness 
and it's rough and we'll get through it. And on the other side is something good and beautiful. I'm actually going to transform the wilderness itself so that no longer is it the bad place that you just have to go through in order to get someplace good. That's how powerful God is, that God will transform this place into the place where you desire to be, into the place where new things are happening, things that are different. And it's interesting, again, he writes, do you not perceive it? Can't you see it? Open your eyes and choose to see the wilderness as this place where these new and beautiful and miraculous things are happening. We don't have to just think about it as a, a, a necessary evil, a bad place we have to go through, or even we can get through it with God's help. But now it's the place where we go intentionally because we see a beauty, because we see abundance in the wilderness. Now, this same prophet, Isaiah, <clears throat> is quoted extensively in the New Testament and, of course, in the narrative of Luke-Acts. And one of Isaiah's prophetic oracles is found in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It's where John the Baptist begins his ministry in the wilderness, baptizing people, and where Jesus comes to be baptized and begins his ministry too. And so the words of Isaiah resounding in the very beginning of the Baptist and the Messiah really bring this to its fullness when we look at what the wilderness might mean. And so Luke quotes Isaiah saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked will be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Do you see perspective? What is it that the wilderness gives us? Well, in the wilderness, everything that's high is brought low and everything that's low is lifted up so that all people are standing on a level place. Why? So that all flesh will see God's salvation. All people will be able to see it. Everyone has a vantage point. So the wilderness is indeed the ideal place, the place where you want to be if you want to see God's salvation, which in this biblical mindset, Everyone wants to see God's salvation. Everyone wants to receive good news. Everyone wants the divine on their side. Well, the place where you can see it, the place where it can be made clear to you, is in the wilderness, where all of the hierarchies of the rest of the world vanish. There are no people who are lifted up and others who are made low in the wilderness because what would be the point? There's no thrones in the wilderness. There's no palaces. There's no prisons. There's no one better than anyone else in the wilderness because none of the structures that make that possible are there because it's desolate. 
And so here, Luke shows people who are reading the gospel of Jesus that this is the way we are meant to see. The wilderness is meant to be our perspective, that we can see all things on a level place and see God's salvation as being made available and accessible to everyone. In fact, we could say, just like Isaiah says, that the wilderness is the way of the Lord, meaning it's not just the path that we walk through, but it's the manner of walking. It's the manner of being. And I'll show you this. After Luke quotes this uh, scripture from Isaiah, about everything that's high becoming low and everything low becoming high and all people standing on a level place and seeing God's salvation, Luke adds something that none of the other gospels add. And that is this uh, question and answer segment that John the Baptist has with all the people who've come out to be baptized by him. And Luke writes, and the crowds asked John, what should we do? And he replied to them and said, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. And soldiers also asked him, well, how about us? What should we do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. Do you see in these instructions an actual method, a way of being that actually brings this leveling process that we saw in the words of Isaiah, it brings it into the activities of the world. It's not that whoever, that the, the, the high places don't trade with the low places so that the low places are high. No, it says those things that are high become low and those things that are low become high, and all flesh shall see. They're all on an equal place. If you have two coats, you don't have to give both away. Just give one of yours to someone who has none. And now you have made the two equal. Now they both have salvation. They are saved from the cold. They are spared from exposure. And whoever has food, if you have extra, give some to someone else. And now we have both people saved from starvation. And all of these practices that John is teaching are to bring this aspect of the wilderness into the way of living for God's people. And so this is the progression that we get. There's so much we could talk about that we haven't been able to. But this is a good snapshot of many different ways that the wilderness is imagined and reimagined, the way the wilderness is used, not just as a place, but as an organizing principle in the way that we're meant to think about the world, the relationships between humans and those humans and God. I also wonder if these aren't ways for us to personally, intimately, and individually think about and reflect on our own life experiences. How many wildernesses have we walked through 
And what was our perspective on the wilderness? What we have seen, to be sure, is that the perspective of the one viewing the wilderness tends to find whatever validation for that particular thing that they believe they're perceiving. The population that viewed the wilderness as a punishment, the wilderness became a punishment. And those who saw the wilderness as a place of worship, worshiped God in the wilderness. Those who saw it as provision celebrated being provided for. How many things enter our lives? How many seasons do we enter? And we identify it as a wilderness. And maybe we jump too quickly from wilderness to place of loneliness, from wilderness to place of punishment, from wilderness to temporary place that I just have to get through. And what I wonder is, from the witness of scripture that we have, maybe there are more options. Maybe there are more possibilities in a wilderness than we're used to considering. And what if, as God has always seemed to do, what if God couldn't do more than all we could possibly ask or even imagine? Thank you so much for being with me today. I look forward to our next time together when we will also look at spirit and what the element of spirit means in our Bibles and in our lives. Thank you so much. God bless you.